verses 1 to 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We start Second Peter today. We've been working our way through First Peter for quite some time. If you read the two epistles in any English translation, you'll be struck by how similar they are in some ways. Peter talks about the flood, for instance, and draws spiritual uh, understanding out of that event. If you follow the next several weeks, you'll see several of them. It certainly looks like it comes from the hand of the same man in English. Uh, scholars debate that, and the reason why they debate it is because if you read it in the, the original, 1 Peter is in a beautiful, perfect Greek, obviously a well-learned scholarly hand wrote the book, the language is flawless, it's, it's nearly poetic. The language of 2 Peter is rough. It is you know, not bad Greek, but it's not that kind of educated, highfalutin, beautiful kind of Greek. It almost looks like somebody else wrote it. And since, quote, scholars like what is in the first book better than they do the second book, they will oftentimes tell you this second book can't possibly be from the Apostle Peter, that rough fisherman, that man who in the book of Acts was said to be unlearned, but we can tell he's very different because he's been with Jesus. It can't possibly be him. Rather, he wrote the first book, which talks about how the Christian life is a matter of suffering for the glory of the Lord. He didn't write the book about spiritual sanctification, avoiding false teaching, and the coming judgment of the world. You can kind of see where this is going. But the truth is, there's an answer to the uh, problem, and it's right in the very text of the two letters. As we ended 1 Peter, Peter told us, now, 
I have written to you by the hand of Silvanus, who I consider a faithful brother. And Silvanus was what was called an amanuesis, which is a fancy word for a scribe that helps you write a letter. Uh, Peter was a free man when he wrote 1 Peter, and he had access to the spiritual gifts of other people in the church. Uh, Silvanus helped him write a beautiful letter. But that is not where Peter is as this letter begins. This letter begins with Peter in custody. He is in the hands of the Roman Empire. He will not get out of their custody. He is facing death, and he knows that. We're going to see that in the book. Uh, and there's no help around. So we are reading the writing of a rustic fisherman, a man whose learning doesn't come from the academy, it comes from having walked with our Lord Jesus Christ. It is how he would talk. It is how he would relate to uh, average people. And it is fairly straight and to the point as a very common and basic man would write. And as he begins this letter to us, he goes out of his way to emphasize that he is a pretty basic guy. He tells us that he is Simon. Simon is his birth name, the name of the fisherman. He tells us that he is a bondservant of our Lord Jesus Christ. The term is doulos. It's translated bondservant because that hits less hard than slave, but slave is what it is. Peter says, I'm just like a common slave. I'm a common guy, and yet he pairs up those two phrases with statements of glory. He says, I am Simon Peter. Peter is a name he was not born with. Peter is a name that our Lord Jesus Christ looked at him, and once he had made confession of who Jesus was, when, he, when everybody else was stumbling about to say, who is this Jesus of Nazareth, and God, in his providence, gave Peter to say, you are the Christ of God. Uh, Jesus said, you are a common rock, but upon this kind of common rock, I will build my church. And Peter cannot help but be thinking about that. He is merely Simon, merely a guy, but Jesus has transformed him into the kind of rock the church will be built on. So I am Simon Peter, and I am merely a slave of Christ, but in my calling as a slave, he has made me an apostle. An apostle is a messenger from the emperor. It is a man of great authority. It is someone who speaks for the very emperor himself. And so as Peter begins this letter, he wants us to see in the person of himself what our Lord Jesus Christ can do with just a very common person. Are you Simon? Are you merely a slave of Christ? Do you feel very common and not of special use? Well, that's Peter, the man that God said he built the kind of church. It is the foundation of the church is going to be built by people like him, making the proper confession of who Christ is, even made him an apostle. But it's an apostle who is finishing his tour of duty here. 
He knows that he is going to die. In fact, he's had that sword of Damocles hanging over his head for some time. Uh, it's been several decades back, but one of the last things our Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter was this. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Now, Peter wasn't terribly thrilled with that when he got the message. And what follows next is, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, and who had also leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Which can be translated as, this doesn't seem fair. And Jesus says to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It's that time. What comes next after our spiritual reading this morning is, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, for though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decrease. History ran a very long time before you were born. We have every expectation that it will probably run for quite some time after you die. You are staring death in the face. You know that your time is short. Uh, what do you talk about? It tends to uh, crystallize the mind into kind of a laser-like focus. You're probably not going to uh, spend your last hours cleaning the house and washing the dishes. You're going to turn to those things that are of utmost importance, and that is what Peter does, and it is what the Holy Spirit is doing through him providentially. It is where our letter comes from. Peter is considering the whole swath of his ministry and what God has called him to do. And as an apostle of Christ, he has been called to be a overseer of a major building project. The Lord Christ has been building a temple. He has told us that this temple is not of bricks and stone. It's the temple of human hearts united in Christ, each person being a part of that temple, each person uh, being an extremely important part of that temple. Peter, as Christ's apostle, has been overseeing the building of that temple, and now he wants to make sure that building continues and properly. In verse 5 through 7, Peter turns to us and says, because of this very reason, which we're going to see in a moment, uh, I want you to add this to that, and this to that, and this to that. It's 
a call to build ourselves as individuals upon the faith that we have been given. Uh, this is what's on Peter's mind as he considers his soon homegoing. He is overseeing the building of Zion. And he turns to us and he says, you need to be building the city of God. You need to be building Zion right where you are. You need to be building Zion out of you yourself. I am calling you as my last call, build yourself up on your most holy faith. Add this to that, add this to that, add this to that. It's not the individualistic self-help kind of religion that you might think it is, though. We are called to build ourselves because we are the temple of God. We build where our house is in the city of God. If we were to go back into the book of Nehemiah, we would see the city of God, the physical city of sticks and mortar, laying in total ruins, and Nehemiah called to oversee a major building project. And he organized the people of God to rebuild the city, each man building right next to where he lives. Do you live next to the east gate? You build the east gate. Do you live next to the shepherd's quarter? You build the shepherd's quarter. Wherever you happen to be located, there you build because there you are. And you are finite, of course. You're not God who is infinite. You are only in certain places, and only certain things are given to you. God has not put the entire world on your shoulders. But what God has given to you, what he has assigned, there you build. And what has God assigned to you more intimately than you? And you are part of the temple of God. So Peter says, I want you to build yourself on your most holy faith. Add this to that, add this to that, add this to that. Uh, grow in the Lord. He is writing to disciples. He wants to watch us be built into a spiritual house, which is language he used in his first letter. You have come to him who is the high priest, and you yourself are priests of the Most High God and are the temple itself. You're stones being built together into the great temple of Christ. Build yourself up. But our Lord did have a thing or two to say about building projects. One of the most pointed was, if you are going to build a tower, you really need to take note, do you have what it takes to build it? Because men will look upon you if you begin to build something and you didn't have what you needed, and when your edifice stands only half complete and unable to be finished, uh, they will knock you because you didn't really count the cost. So if Peter is going to call us to add this to that, this to that, build the temple of God in ourselves, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we have what we need to do that building? Well, Peter's answer to us is, yes, we do indeed. Verse 1 through 4 is the assurance that our Lord Christ has already provided all the materials that the building is going to require. 
He begins by reminding us that we have, quote, received a like precious faith as our own. What does it mean that we have received a like precious faith as our own? Well, our own is referring to the apostles themselves. Peter is an apostle of Christ. He is in the highest office the Church of Christ can have. There is no higher office than apostle. And if you were to think in terms of hierarchy and importance of office, uh, you would picture the apostles as certainly being above normal men. They would be the spiritual superheroes. They were the ones who truly stood in the presence of our Lord Christ and is far higher than the Irish disciple. But if you were to picture them that way, you would be thinking like the flesh. Our Lord Christ said of the Gentiles, you know that it was... Uh, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." The Apostle Peter, right out of the gun, says to all the disciples, all the believers who will be reading this letter, now you know that what Christ has given me, as far as what unites me to him, is no different than what he has given to you. I am Peter, but I'm also Simon. I am an apostle of Christ, but I'm also merely a slave. And you heard that language in what Jesus was saying. Those whom he calls will be servant, slave. I'm an apostle, but my office is merely for ministry. It does not make me anything different than any other man. God has called me to this position, but what will on the day of judgment mean that when I stand before God, I am not condemned, it will be faith. And it's a gift from God. I have received faith. And you, follower of Christ, whoever you may be, common man, you also have received faith. It did not originate in your heart. It did not originate in your mind. It did not grow in your human will. It was a gift from God. And I am writing to people who have faith of the exact same character, the exact same worth, the exact same potential as the faith that is in the apostles. Wherever you see fleshy thinking growing in the church, there you begin to see a distinction in the value of people. I remember during my brief time in Episcopalianism, uh, in a number of Episcopalian churches, if you are a disciple, you are able to come up to the rail, but if you are a deacon, you are able to stand behind the rail. If you are a priest, you're able to stand on the dais, which is one step up, 
And if you are the bishop, you are able to stand beside the Lord's table, all of which symbolizes that yeah, a little better than you. Anywhere there's that kind of thinking in the church, the spirit is not motivating that. The truth is, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. The callings, the gifts, the offices that someone may occupy, they are gifts of service. They are that you may be a bond servant of Christ and a servant to your brother. They don't make you any different. Christianity is a pass-fail kind of thing, and God makes his decisions. He is very clear about this, not on the basis of your value. So if you find yourself standing beside the Lord's table and think that person ought to be down <coughs> on the floor, that is not Christian thinking in any regard. Peter says to us, you have the same faith as the apostles. It has been given to you by Christ, and... Uh, of course you have that. You're going to have grace and peace, too. Peter says, I hope that grace is multiplied to you. I hope that peace is multiplied to you. Grace is favor with God that you don't deserve, but he is really invested in, and he does give it to you. Peace is that inner peace of the heart and also peace with God. Peter says, I hope that's multiplied to you, but it's more than just a hope. It's a guarantee because we have received all things we need for life and for godliness. Build yourself, Peter is going to say. We're going to watch the blueprint of the building next Lord's Day. We're going to see how it's to be laid out, and we're going to understand its growth. But as we begin, we are standing with an embarrassment of riches laying all around us. Grace will be yours, peace will be yours, of course it will, because you have received everything you need for life and for godliness. What would that leave out? What is life? Well, life is the totality of being, right? I mean, you live to God or you're dead, and if you live to God, what about you is not life? Everything about you is life. You have everything you need for life. You have everything you need for godliness. Godliness is a beautiful word. It means being like God, and it means being with God. It's everything that takes place in the light the way in Bible study we've been looking at First John, where the apostles call us to walk in the light. Well, the light is godliness. It's being around God. It's being like God. Uh, you have everything you need for godliness, says Peter. It's laying there at your feet. Why is it laying there at your feet? It is because we have all things we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, him who called us. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. What do you need for life? What do you need for godliness? You need our Lord Christ. And there is nothing outside of Christ that you need. 
This is a major theme in the epistles of the apostles because as the church began to expand out into the world, it encountered other streams of thought, many of which directly challenged the Christian faith and said, no, no, that's not true. But a number of which said, that's a nice religion you have there. You just need to add some stuff to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus is, is significant, but what you need is this philosophy, or you need this spiritual discipline, or you need my self-help book, whatever. It was seductive, and it takes place even today. A colleague of mine brought a, a letter to me some years ago. It had been sent to him by one of these Christian publisher companies. On the letter, in big green letters, it read, What do you do when preaching isn't enough? Well, the answer is you don't do nothing because the Word of God is how God has given us to be equipped, and if the word of God isn't sufficient for the cause, then quite frankly, there's nothing else to be done. So he tossed the envelope away and never opened it, which was probably the best thing to do. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the man born of Mary, the man who walked in history, the man who was declared by God at his baptism to be the Son of God, Knowledge of him is where you will find what you need for life and for godliness. And I ask again, is there anything outside of the sphere of life and godliness that has anything to do with human experience? Human beings are alive. If anything has to do with your life, well, it, it's you. And godliness is your calling. What is, uh, what is the purpose of human life? Well, it's to glorify God and enjoy it forever. You have everything you need for that in our Lord Jesus Christ. That will destroy the self-help uh, industry. It will destroy the psychological establishment. But the truth is, that which is lacking in man, that which is needed for all things, is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the material of which we shall build. His divine power has given to us all things through knowledge of him who called us by, quote, glory and virtue. What does it mean that Jesus of Nazareth called us by glory and virtue? Well, glory is that which we are innately attracted to. We find glorious that which we stand in awe of and we love to look at. It is that thing that moves us at an internal level beyond really what can be described uh, we want our lives to be glorious because we want people to look at us like that. We want to uh, be seen as valuable and impressive. Uh, the only thing is the world doesn't really contain any real glory. It contains false glory, glory that looks glorious without anything to compare it to. 
But the real glory that can be found in all of creation is actually the glory of God. And we are told that we find the glory of God in the face of Christ. That Christ is the very image, the very glory of God. Peter pictures Christ entering into a world of blackness where if there is any slight off gray in it, we are amazed at it. And then suddenly there is the blazing light of an angry sun that is in the midst of us. There is a glory beyond expression. It is this one who claims to be the Messiah. And if you would know glory, you would know him. That's what real glory is. And those who follow him have been struck by his glory. In my teaching, when I teach the New Testament, I often point out that uh, there are three words for miracles in the original. There's miracle, which is laying aside natural law. There is sign, which uh, means that God is saying something by a supernatural act. But the third one is wonder. A wonder is something that wakes us up out of our sleepwalking. We have been going through the world just kind of on autopilot, doing what we normally do because that's the way life is. And then suddenly we see something that changes all the way we see the world. Uh, like if someone were to raise a widow's son right in front of you, that would make you wonder. It would shock you out of your complacency and you'd be saying, what's going on here? Well, Peter is saying that Jesus of Nazareth was that in himself. It wasn't just the miracles, and it wasn't just the teaching. It was when you looked at him and you realized who he was, uh, when you realized what God was doing, you realized this is glory, and there, there really was no other glory to be found. You were attracted to this glory the way a moth is attracted to a flame because he simply was who he was. It was his glory, and it was his virtue. Virtue is moral goodness. The scriptures are uh, somewhat of a paradox on this issue. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you'll be told that men are drawn like a moth to a flame to violent people, to wicked people, and that's true. Our sinful nature is drawn to people like that. Uh, when you think about the stories we tell in our books and our movies and that sort of thing, uh, rarely do we have a movie about someone who is kind to his neighbors. We have a movie about a violent man who takes the world violently. I mean, that's, that's what most of them are about. But paradoxically, we are also drawn to actual virtue. There is so little of it in the world that if we are to find actual virtue, not hypocritical, real virtue, we will be just as wondrous about that as we are about any other kind of glory because we have become like David's man in Psalm 4 where he's saying, who will show us any good? Does the world actually contain any virtue? Well, Peter says that 
walking among us for a handful of years was someone who was actually good. They were good in their own being. They were good at the core of their essence. They were good because they were our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, a direct statement of his divinity. He walked among us, and in his light, we saw what was good. We didn't really know what it was until we saw him. We were truly confused about what is good. But Jesus walked among us, and his virtue was glorious. His true goodness drew us to himself. He has called us out of the world because this glory and this goodness, this virtue, is something that our souls hunger for. And in knowing him, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Now, what is the channel between knowing him and having what we need? Well, according to Peter, it is that he has, quote, given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. This is not just a matter of knowledge. So many of the world's religions teach that the world is an illusion as we perceive it. And if we can see beyond the world as it is to what it really is, then we will overthrow our ignorance or our illusion or however they want to phrase it. And we will see the world for what it really is and will grow because we have come to realize what the world is. Christianity makes no such statements at all. Christianity says that the relationship between God and man is one where God sets the parameters of how we relate to him. And what happens in our head doesn't really matter much at all. The whole concept of coming to enlightenment, <coughs> inner peace, that sort of thing, it's not the sort of thing you just aspire to. God has to give it to you. And as you know, the context of what God gives or what he doesn't give in Scripture is all defined by the covenant, and the covenant is a relationship of promise, right? The greater approaches the lesser, and the greater says, I will give you this, and I will give you that, and I will give you this other thing, and I will define our relationship by what I have promised you. I will call upon you for certain things, but this will be a relationship of promise, and I will bind myself to you by my promises. If Jesus of Nazareth had merely walked among us, we would have seen glory and virtue. We would have been amazed at what we saw. We also would have rose up and killed him because we would be only in our sins. And if he had made no promises to us, we would just have been shocked by what had happened. It would have been a spiritual blip on the radar, and it would have had no effect. But before Peter tells us to build, he is telling us what we have to build out of. And we have all these precious <coughs> promises that Jesus Christ has made. He came, he spoke for the Father, he said certain things about God and himself. These things 
were utterly shocking. And if they were not true, the father would not have raised him from the dead. But the father raised him from the dead, so validating everything that Jesus has said. And Jesus has made great, amazing promises to us by being here, while he was here, and these promises can be taken to the bank. Are you capable of building the temple? Well, of course not. But God has promised in Christ you will be able to do this. It will be through Christ, knowing Christ, understanding Christ, everything about the Christ, but God has promised through the Christ, and Christ's promises will stand. What will Christ's promises do? It is nearly breathtaking when we consider what the Apostle Peter says his promises will do. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You will partake of the divine nature. In Reformed theology, we make a distinction between communicable and incommunicable virtues. Uh, it's a philosophical way of talking, but it basically means that there are some things about God that are unique to God, and man will never have them. Things like having immortality in himself. That is, quote, a incommunicable virtue. Only God has uh, eternality in himself. You, even though you're going to live forever, you're not going to live forever because you're immortal. You are always going to depend upon God to keep you in existence. If at any moment God decided, I don't want you to exist, you wouldn't exist. God has immortality in himself. But there are a number of virtues that God possesses that man can possess. God is love. Well, we can love. God is, I mean, going through the first John ones, light, life, that sort of thing. All of those things are inherent in God, but we, we can partake of those things ourselves. The only thing is that born into this world, born of Adam, all of those things are dead on arrival. They're potential in man, but man is dead. He's born spiritually dead. Peter says that through the promises of Jesus Christ, all of these communicable virtues have the on switch thrown. God brings us to life in Christ, and all those virtues that we can share with God to a certain degree, not to his level, but to a certain degree. Now we actually begin to share them. Now we are able to love. Now we are able to understand a certain level of justice. Now we are able to have a level of compassion. Uh, the promises of Jesus Christ empower that. There is a transformation of who we are internally. Any religion that doesn't teach conversion is not the Christian religion. 
There are thousands of pulpits in the world today where the message will be Jesus Christ came to be an example for you and you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be like Christ. Well, I certainly believe you need to be like Christ. But it cannot be done unless God has changed your nature. There is a transformation that takes place internally. There is a death to life transformation that is as much of a miracle as that sounds like. It is supernatural. It is a miracle. It makes the dead walk. It makes the unliving to live. And none of this is poetic language. This is a spiritual reality that takes place internally. There is no hope in a religion that merely says Jesus is our example. The only hope to be found is in Jesus Christ converts the soul. And here, Peter assures us of that. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus has walked among us, and his promises convert the soul. God works through his word just as much as he did at creation. God created the world by talking. He said, let there be light, and light was. He said, let the earth bring forth trees and such, and it did. And the very same thing happens in Jesus of Nazareth. God speaks in Jesus of Nazareth, and where there was not life, now there is life. Where the divine nature was absent, now it's present. Where we were alienated from God and definitely not part of his family, now we have family resemblance. Because God has spoken and he has promised. And he has given us to, quote, escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. It is not we are going to escape it. It is we have escaped it. Peter pictures the world as in a constant state of grinding itself to powder. The term lust may not be the world's best translation at this point because when we think about the term lust, we think about it in terms of sexuality and that sort of thing. And lust obviously has an impact on that kind of category. But the term lust here, and actually in its older English use, is much broader than that. Lust is desiring what you're not supposed to have. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can literally be anything. This use of the term lust means break the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. Covet what? Well, covet anything. Anything that God doesn't want you to have. Human history begins in a burst of lust. Eve, there's a tree you're not allowed to eat of, right? You should do that. God said no. Well, yeah, but you ought to, because God's lying to you. You really should have what he didn't give to you. Peter pictures the entire flow of human history uh, effectively coming out of that. Human history is the history of men desiring what God has not given them and acting to get that. And the end result has been a history of nothing but conflict, violence, and destruction. 
there is destruction in the world constantly happening because men want what God didn't give them. They fight, they war, they destroy. It takes place overtly often, but many times covertly. But that's what's driving all of human history. And when we don't have the divine nature, when we are outside of Christ, we are all a part of it. And in fact, it comes up in our language. So you're off to the rat races, right? We use that language. You know, we're all a bunch of rats running through the maze, trying to devour what we can find and get ahead of others so they don't get it. Um, outside of Christ, that's kind of what human history is. And Peter says, you're no longer a part of that. You have escaped that. Why would you be part of that? You have everything you need for life and godliness. It's laying at your feet. It's, it's glowing in the light of the presence of Christ, who has lived among us and is still among us. We can know him. We have his promises. Why would you be part of the rat race? Why would you be part of rodents devouring rodents to get a little further ahead in the maze? Well, you wouldn't if you truly are in the light of Christ. Our Lord Christ was glorious in that he wasn't like that. He was glorious in virtue. And in him, we saw virtue for the first time. And we have everything that comes out of his virtue. He has purchased it for us. He is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is going to call us in the next couple of verses to add this to that, add this to that, and there's going to be a purpose for that. And it's a very real call. In Jesus Christ, we are called to moral excellence. We are called to build ourselves on our most holy faith. But it is not a call to works righteousness in any means because everything that you will need to answer the call that we will hear next week has been given to us in Jesus Christ. The takeaway from this sermon should be the absolute sufficiency that is in Jesus Christ. I don't know how to emphasize that to the level it needs emphasizing. You will walk out of this worship into a world that will tell you you need this instead of Christ, or they will tell you you need this and Christ. It will be a constant cacophony, and you will hear it day in and day out. You need this, you need that, you need this, you need that. All of it is effectively antichrist because antichrist literally means replacing Christ. At the beginning of his letter, Peter wants to assure us you don't need anything but Christ. Jesus Christ has been given to you. You are complete in what God has given you enjoy everything in the world in orbit around Christ. Everything in the world finds its actual meaning in Christ. There is nothing that you need beside Christ. Nothing at all. Thanks be to God. Is there any catechism work that needs to be done at this time? <laughs>